1: Welcome to episode one hundred and forty-three of the Partyman Panel podcast. We're taping on Saturday, a couple hours before the NCAA Final Four kickoff. So there's four teams remaining.
0: Oh, we get a kickoff? Or we get a tip-off? Isn't it a tip-off? I think. I don't think if there's. Did kicking, I say kickoff? Yeah, yeah, Look, not the kickoff. They're a football stadium. Yeah, I'm sure. But... Yeah.
1: Well, it'd be a new sport. Uh, uh, some kickball, basketball, in any event. Uh, tip-offs in a couple hours, and so what? A, what a tournament it's been. Uh, Pat and I were just talking about you know the cream of this crop is U- UConn, but anybody can win. Uh, San Diego State has an amazing defense, and uh, Miami's able to kind of adapt. So it's kind of an interesting and March Madness and all FIU's in April.
0: Done is one thirty some games, right? I, I just want to say as a bas- as a former basketball coach from South Florida, I I, I am warm. And my mother has three degree at three degrees from from Florida Atlantic. Um, you know. It- it's quite a, it's quite a thing to see two south florida teams in the final four i'd like to be down there because i can't imagine that they even knew the people down there even knew that there was they were playing basketball because basketball is what you do in florida in between football in the fall and football in the spring That's and right. in certain parts of the state what you do between football and baseball uh right and, and they just cram yeah. basketball so like, why well, there's this thing that we do in the middle what are we doing here so <laughs> Um, but it, it's, it's, it, it's quite a situation that there's two South Florida teams. in the
1: It is. Four. It is. And best all of them. Because so what a
0: power in basketball, South Florida. not what you think of.
1: <laughs> you know, uh, Miami has been to the, to, to the elite eight, I think four in the last 10 years. So they, they've, uh, repeatedly had, had solid teams. So I, I
0: think that has something to do with, uh,
1: Jim Laranega can
0: coach the basketball.
1: He, right. can. he can, he can, really an coach. excellent coach. And recruiter, especially in this yeah. environment. So in any exactly. event, enough on basketball. We got some uh, some uh, other court uh, stuff to talk about today on the on different court podcast, a different court. Uh, and and one finalist, I pad. I don't know if you saw, but Tim Caldwell, uh, uh, who we were on with the California app, he's uh, opening a branch in Texas, and he's going to start a Texas podcast. So. Uh, it'd be interesting because there's already a Texas Appellate podcast, and he's having those people on next Thursday, I think, uh, to That's great. see who's uh, if there's going to be one podcast left standing or both can survive in the, one I think, in a big state of Texas. That's right. <laughs> so in any anyway, event, we, we have three cases today, one from uh, the United States Supreme Court, our first case, United States versus Hanson. Uh, second case today is from the Illinois Supreme Court, Cleeton versus SIU Healthcare, Inc., And our third case today is Hattery versus Minchhofer from the Illinois Appellate Fourth District. Let's turn to our first case. Like the Supreme Court did in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, the court in United States versus Sinaneng Smith decided the case on issues other than the question presented. And now, with the real issue unresolved, it is faced with the same issue again. And this is happening in some of the Supreme Court, as we've talked about on some of these podcasts. The uh, Supreme Court sometimes takes cases. And goes down a different path than what's asked by any of the parties uh, before them. In both cases, the reasoning for rejecting the conduct of the underlying court was proper. In Masterpiece Cake Shop, it was that the Colorado Civil Rights Commission had shown religious animus to the petitioner. And in Sinanang Smith, it was that the Ninth Circuit had considered issues not presented by the parties. Oh, lo and behold, <laughs> round two for the issues presented in Sinanang Smith was heard this week or last week I should say uh, in United States versus Hansen the question presented according to the Supreme Court website is quote whether the federal criminal prohibition against encouraging or inducing unlawful immigration for commercial advantage or private financial gain in violation of 8 USC section 1324 a1 a4 that's right there's 4 parentheticals and b1 is facially unconstitutional on First Amendment over-breath grounds, end quote. The Ninth Circuit held in favor of the criminal defendant and struck the statute as over The defendant-respondent sold sham schemes to allow undocumented people to remain in the country through adult adoption. The statute forbids encouraging or inducing a person to remain in the country illegally, and the government argues that that actually means solicits and aids and abets, despite those terms having been removed from the statute in 1952. Many hypotheticals were presented on who might be covered on the statute, from grandmothers to charities to lawyers who provide assistance to undocumented persons, and the government asked the court to trust them. Pat, tell us about oral argument in this very interesting uh, case at the Supreme Court.
0: Thank you, Dan. And so I want to start where Dan began. And that is, so this case came to the court in 2018, 2019. Mm -hmm. And I say this case, I mean this issue. And the Senating Smith case, this was another person who had had done some sort of malfeasance with with some scheme to keep people in the country or something. I don't remember what exactly it was she was accused of doing. But what had happened at the Ninth Circuit is the Ninth Circuit had asked for briefing on this overbreadth of the of the provision that Dan mentioned. And then the court struck it on overbreadth grounds. Nobody raised, the parties didn't raise overbreadth grounds. And in a unanimous opinion authored by Justice Ginsburg for the court, they wrote that the party presentation rule was violated because the parties frame the issues and the court shouldn't take, shouldn't decide what it thinks the party should talk about. And it's then so it reversed the Ninth Circuit and sent it back. Well, that doesn't end the issue because the cat's now out of the bag. Uh, these kinds of you know, the, the kinds of advocacy groups that were concerned about what happened here or could or how encouraging or inducing could be read didn't go away, their concerns remain. And we're talking about, as Dan said, charities. You know, uh religious charities, uh, people at the border who were helping, you know, lawyers and others who are helping undocumented persons, uh, you know, grandmothers saying, you know, we we'd like you to stay and, and we'll help you stay, this kind of a thing. Or saying to grandma, stay. We'll take care of you, it's not a problem, this kind of a thing. And the uh the the what I did not hear in this argument, Dan, correct me if I'm wrong if you heard this. I think the operative language here is not encouraging or inducing. I think the operative language is for commercial advantage or private financial gain. And I didn't hear a word about that modifying language because I think that takes care of the vast majority of the sky is falling hypotheticals and certainly focuses on what Hanson is alleged to have done here, which is sell at $10,000 a pop these adult adoption schemes to allow people to stay in the, stay in the country, some Catholic charity or other religious charity or other kind of charity that's helping, uh, an undocumented person. And and, and this includes, uh, domestic violence shelters and, and, and people of this kind. They're not doing this for commercial or financial gain, right? They are doing it to be, as the name suggests, charitable. Grandma isn't asking her grandson to stay in the country out of private financial gain, It's her grandson. She would like him to stay. Likewise, grandson says to grandma, I'd like you to stay. He's not saying that for private financial gain. There wasn't a word about the argument about that modifying language. The entirety of the argument focused on what does encouraging or or inducing means. And a lot of discussion about bringing the old soil. You hear this term periodically. They brought the old soil. And the old soil apparently includes aiding and abetting and solicitation, which each have an intent requirement. There's not an intent requirement in this statute. It's not there. Nope. Um, and Justice Gorsuch is the one who said to <coughs> counsel for the respondent, uh, who is the def- who's the criminal defendant below, I don't trust the government either when they tell me they're not going to do this. A- and as an aside, Justice Sotomayor was actually able to point to a case where this happened. They did actually, there's a district court case, and so they prosecuted one of these kinds of cases against somebody who was not a fraud feaser or some sort of scam artist, as was Hanson. Um, but the, how what does it mean to encourage or adduce? So the, the government, it's like, well, that's just the same language. It means the same thing. Yeah, they took it out. But that was taken out five years after the Supreme Court said that those words simply mean uh, the same things as aiding and abetting and soliciting. Even though aiding and abetting and soliciting have different elements from each other. Um, and are more than encouraging and inducing. And that's where I think the modifier, the clause that comes after for commercial advantage or private financial gain comes in. And so that, if you read that language in that way, and Dan, am I wrong? Did you hear any any words, any argument about commercial advantage or private financial gain?
1: Not, not a single word.
0: Okay. All right. And, and when you just read it, I heard it again and I went, it's not, they didn't talk about it. It seems to be the operative language because I and think you take care of the vast majority of the hypotheticals. When I was you just going to
1: say, if you, if, if you use that language, like you said, the grandmothers, the, the attorneys, charities, the well, charities, well, let's, charities. Let's, attorneys, let's, maybe. That's what I was going to get the
0: attorney, the attorneys, maybe you're, you're, so you a lot of them do it pro bono.
1: So they're doing it but pro bono if, or but, if
0: you, you, but if you're dealing with an attorney who's giving counseling advice, for a person to stay in the country. So this could be you know, um, uh, someone who works for a business, you know, is hired by a business to give counseling on how to keep you know, someone that's got an immigration issue and they wanna keep them, they're trying to find a visa to get them on or, or some way to keep them in. I mean, plainly, the is in that situation is doing it for private financial gain. The lawyer may be trying to do everything completely above board. And tries to find a visa that works. So let's suppose the lawyer makes a mistake, or it doesn't quite work out. Is is he going to be here? She going to now be prosecuted under the statute? It's kind of hard to see that that kind of prosecution. But I, I I really don't understand why you there's a doctrine, and I think this did come up about constitutional avoidance. I, I I think you avoid the constitutional problem of overbreadth when you just simply read the entirety of the language of the rule or of the, of the statute. And and I don't understand why they didn't do that. There had to be, because no one brought it up. No one talked about it. Not one of the justices, not the advocates. I I, I really didn't understand that. But so the focus was on what does it mean to encourage or induce? And it's very broad language. And I will say that I went into this. I I was very, having listened to the argument on sending Smith, and now having listened to this argument, I went into this quote. The petition, or the respondents got no chance. I mean, this isn't overbroad. This is, this is ridiculous. And then I listened to an hour and a half or so of the argument or however long it went. And I was like, the government's got a problem. (laughs) The government's got a real problem because the, the, the more liberal justices are not buying what they're selling. Okay. Justice Gorsuch didn't seem to be buying what they're selling. Um, justice Barrett didn't seem to buy it. Uh they they've got a they've got a real problem. And if Congress wants to do this, they're going to have to tighten. I think they're going to have to tighten this up when the government's argument is we want, you know, this this line that came that came in, I think it was Justice Sotomayor said, or maybe it was Justice Kagan. Exactly. How do you want us to rewrite the statute was the line that was used? Um, Because that's what they see, what the justices are like. You're asking us to rewrite the statute. The statute doesn't say uh, soliciting or aiding and abetting, it says encouraging or inducing. And that's, those are different things, far broader terms. And you can't rely on 70 years. Now there's a dispute over whether it's 70 years or really the last change was in 1986. It's really, you know, just under 40 years. Well, eat, eat, Who cares? Uh, neither the court nor the, nor the respondent has to trust the government that they're not going to do prosecute grandma for encouraging grandson to stay in the country, uh, that's you know that's plainly ridiculous. That they have to trust them to write a statute that's clear. Overbreath is obviously a disfavored doctrine in the law, uh, and I, I don't know if that's, but it, it, the statute just doesn't. It's it's it doesn't give people a fair warning as to what's prohibited, and that's the problem. And that, board, that, board, that borders on the vagueness, Doctor, which we know Justice Thomas and some of the others don't really like. But yep. this isn't what the statute says. And the con- yep. and the conduct that's... And it's a first... I, mean, I haven't said this and I should have. It's a First Amendment issue. You have a First Amendment right to speak, to associate, to encourage, to do these things. It's you don't have a right to do criminal activity. And if you're talking about... And so the, the lawyer would have a First Amendment defense in the context that we talked about where they're trying to provide legitimate uh, immigrant advice to an immigrant uh, to stay in the country, and they would have a First Amendment defense to what they what they were doing because they, the First Amendment only criminalizes certain con- – or First Amendment protects all speech and has very few exceptions – fighting words, criminal activity, fraud. manner. You know, th- but, but in terms of the kinds of categories of speech that are prohibited, it's a very small category, and I have a hard time – uh, plainly, the conduct here was fraudulent. It's not protected by the statute. Uh, right. But is it, uh, it, it, this isn't the kind of person, this is a bad example, because they, they've they got a person that's really, really not good, and they got him on a ton of other things. This was like, like count number 17 or something of the counts that they got this guy on um, for all the other crimes he committed uh, in addition. So Dan, thoughts on this case?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think this is uh you know, it's it's probably another case where the Ninth Circuit uh is sent back, right? <laughs> it's a Ninth Circuit case. No, I
0: don't uh, think I, I think I think that like the Ninth Circuit gets upheld. it's the, the Ninth Circuit circuit is over. No, you're brought. right
1: this time. You're right this time. The, the which Ninth would break a streak. Starts, yeah. Which would break a streak at the Ninth Circuit. But exactly. uh I, I think I this think is the one case where it actually makes sense. Um I think nah, I, right. I, I had it backwards. Um it's
0: okay. It's hard to keep it straight. They're so usually in the wrong, but I think they got this one right.
1: Yeah. And like you said, you, you know, like you said I mean, this is intended to uh, not have these people that are, you know, doing sham things. I had kind of the reverse of that. Several years ago, I took out an asylum case where the guy came in through. Uh, they actually reported a uh, long story about being chased by uh, the, the number one drug cartel in Jalisco and uh, getting to the border turning themselves in. Uh, this guy had hired what they call coyotes, or I forget what they call them, That coyotes on the other side of the border. Yeah. They do this similar type of thing, but in reverse, not to keep in the country, but to get them in the country. They sell bad IDs you know, that don't even look like you, all, all kinds of stuff. And then what happened with this guy was his wife had never been uh, illegally detained. So she, she went to San Diego to the hospital, got released. He uh, went up to Kenosha. Uh, into uh, detention facilities because he had had two of those situations. Uh, He had uh, uh, his uh, 13-year-old son at the time had gone up to L.A., stayed with an uncle, started getting into drugs and other things. And so the dad was trying to get up to, you know, get him back and get him straight. And uh, in any event, yeah, I think this this statue, like you said, I I was surprised um, that they didn't talk about the commercial angle because, like you said, that would have cleared up a lot of the hypotheticals. And who knows? This may have been an even shorter oral argument in in the in the current regime. This was an hour and twenty two minutes, which you know is barely over the old one hour limits that were strictly enforced. So, relatively short argument. It may have been even shorter if if they'd asked those questions from the jump. You would not have those hypos. But uh, an interesting case. And uh, like you said, you know, then in the question when it went back to the Ninth Circuit, and now here here we have an opportunity for the court. This may be one. There may be a lot of cases. You know, we talked to uh, uh, on our special episode about a case that may be late in June. This, this, this to me, uh, who knows? But I don't see. I don't see this as being a really divided court on this issue, and so, and is so we may see this. We may see this one come out relatively shortly.
0: The government uh, has got a problem, and and their their one friend might be Justice Alito, as it usually is. Yeah. Uh, Justice Alito has never found, uh, or very rarely, I should say, I should say never. Rarely has found a case where the government uh, in a criminal case loses, but uh, this might be one, because I think the government's- And this, uh,
1: you know, you, you mentioned uh, Alito, that they, they, there's a book coming out by Joan Biscopic who's got all kinds of scoops all the time. According to her book, there's been a couple of deals where Alito has, has taken back some pretty uh, aggressive dissents, uh, and there, there's been some trading. So I think Masterpiece Cake, the case you talked about, I think is the one she cited, that's- uh, Chief Justice Roberts asked him to tone down his dissent and trade a votes or something on something around the same time. So.
0: Uh, well, and, and let's go back to that. Cause I think that part of that is the, you know, the court narrowing its rulings and only deciding what it has to, in both of those cases, it decided a thing that they ever could agree on the The yeah. Colorado, Colorado civil rights commission had clearly expressed animus against Jack Phillips. It was plain. Yeah. And, and so yeah. now Jack, I mean, Problem is Jack Phillips wins but loses because now he's just got another case to gotta deal with because you know, the day after he wins he gets another another solicitation for a, a cake you know he's not going to bake, um, and and the same thing happens here in Hanson the issue doesn't go away but we all, but we we have this uh, reinvigoration shall we say or reaffirmance of this uh, party uh, party uh, presentation doctor so all right with that we'll take our first break and come back with uh, Cleeton versus SIU Healthcare. We're back for segment two of episode 143, and this has been an active period for the Illinois Supreme Court. Uh, In addition to arguments we have covered on the Safety Act in Roe versus Raul and Lichter versus Carroll, the court also recently heard Cleeton versus SIU Healthcare, Inc. In Cleeton, the question is, what is the burden of the plaintiff to convert uh, a defendant from a respondent in discovery to a direct defendant? It's a very unique procedure in Illinois that uh, uh, is governed by Section 735 ILCS 5/2-402, that requires a showing of "quote probable cause," but does not. But does that mean that the circuit court then weighs the what the, whether the plaintiff has set forth evidence? And essentially conducts a mini bench trial. The respondent and discovery procedure allows the plaintiff to take discovery from an entity or party who may be a responsible, may be a responsible party for the plaintiff's injuries before deciding to name them as a direct defendant. It extends the statute, the statute of limitations by six months with a possibility of, uh, uh, of a further extension. The circuit court denied the motion to convert in this case, and the appellate court affirmed. The plaintiff appellant argued that if there is a higher standard to convert a respondent discovery to a defendant, then it will render section 2-402 a dead letter and doctors will be named as direct defendants as occurred prior to the amendment or prior to the rule being enacted in the mid-70s. The defendant appellee asserted that something more than simply compliance with a certificate of merit is required, which is section 2-622 of the Code of Civil Procedure, as the statute requires, quote, probable cause. This is the first case to consider what probable cause in this context, a civil context, means. Dan, why don't you tell us about the oral argument?
1: Sure, Pat, thank you. And let's start with Section 2402. You mentioned the language, and the exact language is, quote, a person or entity named as a respondent in discovery and any civil action may be made a defendant in the same action at any time within six months after being named as a respondent in discovery even though the time during which an action may otherwise be initiated initiated against him or her may have expired during such six-month period. And then it talks about, again, good cause. Um, and uh, you, you mentioned a couple things, and and what the appellant really was trying to argue here is that the, the 622, uh, the certificate that's required in medical malpractice cases in Illinois, uh, that that... Uh, certificate of merit, uh, and 402. If you satisfied 622, you satisfied 402, then nobody attacked the 622 motions. Uh, There was a lot of questions. One of the interesting things, I think, Pat, in this case, is is Justice Cunningham is now on the bench. And prior to her going to law school and graduating, uh, she was a nurse uh, full-time. Then she went to law school, and then she was general counsel of Northwestern uh, Memorial. And so... You have somebody that really knows kind of the medical uh, field. And so she asked some questions uh, uh, for sure of the appellant about kind of the procedure and process and, and uh, things. This guy was, a, was the ICU, the intensive care unit uh, head. Uh, there was a procedural manual that was specified in the Certificate of Merit, the Medtronics Procedures uh, Report, I think it was called and uh he had not seen that actual uh procedural uh but he had was familiar with it and justice cunningham especially seemed uh to be pretty pushing on the appellant counsel uh that even if this guy hadn't seen the actual procedures that as an intensive care unit uh doctor he he pr- would know of these things and what happened here was this guy had a catheter uh, there was a, a drug that was going through it. Um, it's very much like sepsis, but it's a different uh, symptom uh, syndrome. And this uh, individual uh, was undetected, and then uh, by the time somebody came to treat him, uh, he had uh, not got the injection he needed to kind of reverse this this uh, syndrome, and uh, went into withdrawal and ended up passing away on the on the on the uh, table. The um, You mentioned, Pat, that some of the discussion was that uh, prior to uh, this respondent and discovery, the process in Illinois uh, and and led to the crisis in medical malpractice, uh, although that was going on even when you and I first started our practice uh, as lawyers. Uh, But what happened back in those days was if you had a situation in, in a medical setting, you named everybody. You named the hospital, you named the Intake. You named the nurses. You named everybody that you could possibly think of, and then uh, it was kind of uh, like like the slogan of the Marines, right? You know, uh, put, kill everybody and then let God sort them out. It was kind of a situation where you would add every doctor's name that could have been in the chain at all. They might not have even done anything. They may have been in the notes once or not even at all. And the intent of this respondent discovery was, as you mentioned. Uh, kind of a streamlined process that would give uh, people kind of a, a, a more advanced. And the apelli, uh, when she was questioned, she talked about this. Uh, that uh, what it does is it gives you the ability to depose these doctors, uh, to start getting experts, and to get some discovery that otherwise, if it was just everybody was named, you might file a motion to dismiss. You might file other uh, dispositive filings uh, that would. Uh, not allow you to have discovery uh, of, of these individuals. And so, in any event, this doctor, um, uh, the, 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 the certificates of merit uh, were similar for all the other doctors that were named as defendants. Uh, this doctor, uh, there were three bases that were put in the certificate of merit for him. Uh, one was this, uh, the Medtronics. Uh, one was failure to administer um, and and there was a, a, a third uh, failure to diagnose, in a third uh, provision, and and the appellant really again was trying to focus that uh, the trial court uh, and and what he said the purpose of uh, of 402 is is to make the uh, trial court judge a gatekeeper, but not a fact finder, and I think Justice Tice for sure I don't think was buying that because I think. At, at, at best here, you have a situation where it's a mixed question of fact and of of law, um, whether there's probable cause. Uh, Justice Tice was trying to look for help because in the criminal setting, this type of uh, analysis happens constantly in, in, in courts. Uh, you mentioned where...
0: background, and that's important because Justice Tice's background yeah. is in the criminal law. She was a public That's attorney. right. And so right. you know that's where she hooked. She so like we got probable causes very well developed on the criminal side. Uh, right. I can tell you chapter and verse about that. Uh, right. so
1: <laughs> You know we haven't had uh, you know early on in the podcast if you recall, Pat, we had a number of cases where the appellate judges were interjecting the construction or you know whatever labor and employment. Remember we we talked about that some where the judges bring their experience. And this was a good case of it because Justice Cunningham and Justice Tice, like you said, trying to uh, filter and use their the, their experience and their kind of understanding of the situation from two different angles. And so, like I said, yeah, Justice Tice was trying backgrounds. to backgrounds,
0: you know, Justice right. Cunningham, an entirely civil background prior to becoming yep. a judge and justice, and and Justice Chief Justice Tice being having a criminal background. Yeah, not as a criminal, but as a criminal defense attorney. <laughs>
1: right, right. And uh, uh, again, you know, I think the appellant was trying to talk about the the fact that again, if you had every doctor named as defendant, uh, and if the if this court upholds what the trial court and the appellate court did, according to him at least, uh, this will uh, erode uh, the benefits of the respondent discovery because if you get this wrong and can't not able to convert then you're in the soup where you're going to uh, have to name everybody as defendants again. And again, uh, he he said that that would raise the cost of litigation, also raise the cost of medical malpractice insurance because, you know, there'd be more claims against more people. This respondent discovery, uh, Pat knows probably more than I do, uh, but what what often happens is that through this process of, of respondent discovery under 402, you... Weed out some of the doctors that, after you do discovery, you know you you don't find that there's probable cause or sufficient evidence to try to convert them to uh, a defendant, and, and so it it does streamline to that that extent. Um, and and again, early on in the litigation for plaintiffs and for the injured or deceased, it's very difficult to really know what what happened without seeing any of the medical notes without. Uh, taking some depositions without doing some discovery of what the process looked like, so uh, an interesting case. I think uh, you know. I don't know where the Illinois Supreme Court is going to go with this, but uh, you know, j- j- just from a from a practicality standpoint, it seems that uh, the appellant might have the better uh, hand in this case. So we'll see what happens.
0: Yeah, the, the other the, an interesting part of this is the standard of review. Is is this? Uh, yeah. they did Did the judge? the circuit court judge did this on the papers, but is it really uh, de novo uh, or is it, or is it a mixed question? You know, what, what, what is this thing? The other thing to yeah. keep in mind is, you know, oftentimes, you know, what, what the defendant or strike that, what the plaintiff appellant is, dis- is arguing is, is that there's going to be, you know, all these doctors are going to get named and whatnot, but it, it's something else to remember. The statute allows a doctor or if any defendant named as a respondent to ask to be named as a direct defendant in order not to give the plaintiff the advantage of taking their deposition first. And I have actually done that. Uh, I had a case where uh, my clients were named. I had, I had three clients. I had the facility and I had two, uh, I had two individuals that were supervisors or you know, people at management and they had named them individually because they were, they wanted to name them, or want to take their depositions first, which they would have been able to do. Step up the first time and say, judge, I want to convert my clients to uh, direct defendants. And the judge looks at me and go, I don't think I've ever heard someone want to do that before. And the other side says, judge, I don't have a basis to name them as a defendant. So I'm going to dismiss them because I don't want to have a 137 violation. Let's call that a very good day. <laughs> right? uh, a very, very good day. And so they eventually got our ladies' depositions. and But that was after we'd taken the plaintiff's step. And so there there's ways to... This, this can be abused, and there's ways around it. So keep that in mind as a, it, it, for Illinois practitioners, how you might use it if you don't think it your clients should be, if you don't want to give them that advantage, because that's oftentimes how plaintiff's attorneys try to use this procedure. Um, the, yeah. th- this particular situation, though, the real issue is what does probable cause mean? And, and so I then look back in, the, in the, the Code of Civil Procedure, and it's used a couple times, uh, this term probable cause, and it's used in the venue statute. Several times to talk about whether you had a probable cause to believe that the that this party was added in good faith and with probable cause, um, uh, you know. So this deals with it's it's used at least three times in the venue statutes. So that's that was somewhat interesting. It's also used in a, in thirteen oh five in the post judgment situation, but uh, it's interesting to use that language in the civil context. I'm really not sure what it means in the civil context. Yeah. So with that, we'll take our our next break and come back with segment three of episode 143 of the Podium and Panel Podcast. Hey, Podium and Podcast listeners. If you want to get in touch with the show, you can drop us a line at podiumandpanelpodcast at gmail.com. Please let us know about cases you're interested in or guests you'd like us to interview. You can also follow Dan and I on LinkedIn, as well as the Podium and Panel podcast page on LinkedIn. We look forward to hearing from you.
1: Welcome back to Segment 3 of Episode 143 of the Podium and Panel podcast. And when does the statute of limitations begin to run against defendants for the filing of a third-party complaint with respect to a repair shop of the vehicle that, was, that plaintiff was driving at the time of an accident. That is the question to be answered when Illinois Appellate Court 4th District decides Hattery versus Menchhofer. The plaintiff was injured when he was involved in an accident with the defendant's tractor trailer. A month or so after the accident, all parties and our experts inspected the vehicle the plaintiff was occupying at the time of the accident and a broken weld was found in the driver's seat. The plaintiff filed suit and more than two years after the defendants were served with process, the plaintiffs moved to dismiss the third-party complaint for contribution, arguing that the defendants were on inquiry notice from the date of the inspection and the circuit court agreed. On appeal, the defendants argue that while they knew a weld had been broken, they did not know whether the weld was made by the manufacturer of the vehicle or was part of a subsequent repair of the vehicle and the invoices they received from the repair shop used by the plaintiff did not provide any information they claimed they did not know that the repair shop repaired the driver's side chair until they deposed the plaintiff and that they filed timely thereafter. Pat, tell us about oral argument.
0: I, I will, but first want to raise another question. Where was the third party defendant? Why <laughs> wasn't this objection to the timeliness of the, of the counterclaim for contribution brought by the third party defendant, this body shop or repair shop? Or did they really sue the plaintiff on a counterclaim for contribution? I, I'm very confused about what happened here, because all there were were two parties. There was the plaintiff and there was the defend the defend. I should say there were two groups of lawyers. There were the defendants and there were the plaintiffs, and there was one plaintiff, and there was no third party. There that they, they they named they said they named this body shop. Um, I, I I don't know. Maybe they they. They stepped in for the body shop as, you know, it, as they were the agent of the plaintiff. I, I, I was very confused by that. Anyway, putting that aside, um, so lots of reference to Knox versus Celatex, which is the case in Illinois that talks about the seminal case from the Illinois Supreme Court that talks about when uh, a a party is on, has sufficient uh, information in order to be on inquiry notice. And it's from the date that you are on inquiry notice that the statute of limitations begins to run. Now, counterclaims or third-party complaints for contribution are the time for a defendant to file those runs two years from the date of service, not from the date of the loss itself, not from the date of the loss itself. So they... If it has to be, when we go back to my first question, it has to be that this could not have been a claim against the plaintiff Because if there was, there would be no statute of limitations under section 207, uh, under 13-207. So it has to be that they named this entity. And I just don't know why they don't have their own lawyer. That's maybe they don't have insurance and the plaintiff is taking up for them because he's going to be responsible for whatever repairs they made. I don't know. So they go in on this report and there's a, There's a huge factual dispute. You hear during the oral heart during the presentation of the appellee, he's like, they knew about this this report, or they knew about this well, then they wrote a report about it. And defense counsel gets up on rebuttal and says, Yeah, it was their report by their expert, not our experts. Now, flip side. There's a there's a letter written by the defense lawyers that say you know more than two years prior before the filing that say um they refer to this as a repair um you know when was you know we need to get to the bottom of this repair about this weld? and there were communications about this pre-suit um and then there are so so they you know that's on the other side of the ledger um there's also issues regarding the delay in taking the deposition of the plaintiff, they originally were scheduled to take the plaintiff's deposition well before COVID. And then ultimately they didn't get his deposition until after COVID and they blamed COVID and the plaintiff's attorney's like, that's okum because they had plenty of time to get his deposition ahead of time. They should have been issuing subpoenas and doing what they needed to do to figure out, they knew about this weld. And they had experts there who knew that there shouldn't be a weld there. It wasn't a manufacturer's weld. And the courts, are, the courts a couple of the justices are like, hold it. Where in the record does it tell us that this weld should could only have been made post manufacture that it had to have been done post sale that it couldn't have been done in De- as the as the justice says, done in Detroit it was done in, it was done somewhere in Illinois after the vehicle had been purchased um, so that that's it, it's it's I don't know if they've got that wrapped up the plaintiff uh, a lot of facts going around here uh, but it's a big issue obviously because this accident, uh, the, the failure of the chair is the defense. Is one of the defenses, and if they can't bring in the the uh, this third party defendant, then that obviously uh, harms the defense substantially. Which is why this went up as it did um, on on this interlocutory appeal. A very interesting case, and, and will be. I think we're going to learn some more facts about the procedure that'll help shed some light on this when the opinion comes out. Um, but but a really interesting one, Dan. What are your thoughts?
1: I agree. It's an interesting case and interesting decision, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what what the court does with that. And indeed, uh,
0: so that one thing I. one thing, us, I, oh, sorry, one, sorry, one thing we ahead. forgot
1: that uh, one thing we forgot to do, and, and for the title of the show, Pat is is in the Hanson case. Sotomayor well, I asked one of the advocates. Oh, you did. Okay, oh, I did. I said it. I missed I, it. I, I got it, right. it in. I All got right. it in. Yes. There the, you go. The uh, I just missed it. Repeat it.
0: it exactly how do you want us to rewrite re- rewrite the statute yep that was that was i thought you did but questions i from either justice kagan or justice sotomayor i believe was sotomayor yeah okay yeah she's like how do you want us to rewrite the statute
1: yeah um, sorry about that it's I, there. I just having a having an old man moment no no we got to get it, it in there and, and go yeah. back that
0: for that for a minute yeah. i said i was convinced usually i am not convinced by justice sotomayor's speeches um yeah and, and I have to say, she convinced. She might. I think she convinced me this time on that one. So you know, if she convinced me that that she's. She's. I think she she may have some impact on her on her colleagues because um, I'm usually just like, well, you got to be kidding me. Why don't you just go to the lector, ma'am? And, and right. She's, and trust me, there's plenty on the other side. Uh, Justice Justice Alito can do the same thing. There's no. He's very. He's perfectly capable of making a polemic of his own. It's uh, Justice Sotomayor seems seems to do it more often uh, where he's just like, just go, 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 go to the lectern. You're, you're going to help him out here. Um, So that brings us to uh, BI for COVID. Um, uh, I should say podium because that's the name of the show. Uh, But uh, BI for COVID, not much that happened this week um, after a couple big weeks. So not much prediction show to go wrong this week. We had a win, a punt and a half and a half. So a little bit of everything. You know, just out of straight loss, so that's good. Uh Dan is now two hundred and nine forty-seven and fourteen. I am two hundred and five fifty and fourteen. The first case that came out was a punt. Um, and this was in in uh second district record time from the first district. It's good we right. talked about pace Arquillo versus Arquillo last week because the opinion came out on Monday or Tuesday. Uh so they were they were on it. Eight pages, right to the point. Uh, Dan, uh, tell us about uh, this very tidy little opinion from uh, yeah. From oh, it's Simon.
1: The, they affirmed the trial court order that dismissed the complaint under the collateral attack doctrine, and they denied leave to amend the complaint. Uh, this was the uh, divorce case. And, uh, yeah, like you said, it very, uh, very quickly decided and uh, will uh, – uh, reminds me that uh, I'll have to send that send – Episode of Justice Hyman, uh, who recently became aware of our our podcast, and so I'll send him that one. Well, and, uh,
0: and I, I think it's important <laughs> this decision, even though it's very tidy, it's very short. It is very he, short. He, he he goes out of his way to distinguish the case from the Chicago Loop case, and to say what should have been done, and if it had been done, that it might have been successful in overturning this. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, you didn't do that. You, you filed this other complaint, but you could have gone under Section 12. You could have gone under 1401. You, you, know, you could have done other things. You didn't do them. So your stock collateral attack, no good. So very interesting. Uh, so that was from Episode 141 that we discussed that case on. Uh, case we discussed on Episode 140, Wong versus Midwest Gaming. We got this one right. Uh, This is the case involving the lady who was behind the beer tub and the casino up in Des Plaines. And I'm saying that right. For those of you who are not Illinoisans, it's, it is Des Plaines. That's how you say it. Right. Uh, Anyway. uh, It's Cairo, not Cairo. It's Cairo, not Cairo. That's right. (laughs) It's Lafayette. If you're from Alabama and it's, it's uh, there's Lafayette, Alabama. (laughs) Um, Anyway, we, it it is DuPage, not DuPage. Yes. Yes. We, we really anglicize these, these words. Um, so fee in, in, uh, in Wong, the court reversed the circuit court held that there was a question of fact as to the reasonableness. And the court pointed to the change One of the, one of the issues that arose in the oral argument was the change in the mores and, uh, or is it mores, uh, the change in the mores, and the court uh, held that, you know, you can't have your employees being grabbed and kissed and so forth by by patrons and that the, the uh, employer needed to do more and they didn't. And maybe a jury will find that that was reasonable, what they did, eight-day delay, and maybe they will find that it wasn't. But it's up to a jury to decide. So very interesting yep. case and an important one, I think, because they distinguished these Seventh Circuit cases and said, you know, our rule is a little bit different. Um which brings us to Remprex versus uh, Lloyd's, which was the half right, half wrong. We discussed in on episode 132, which is a BIPA case. I'm gonna try to boil this down. because It's a really long opinion, it's really complex. It there is. were two cases that Remprex was involved in. BNSF, no coverage. The other case brought by CN, coverage for some. And it was the exception, so the, the exclusion for this kind of conduct Contains an exception indicating the exclusion is not applicable to, cl- indicating the exclusion is not applicable to claims expenses occurred in defending the insured against allegations of the unlawful collection of personally identifiable information, which is what was alleged in the CN complaint. Uh, the court says that is precisely what the CN complaint accused Remprex of doing unlawfully collecting plaintiffs fingerprints. As such, we find that there was coverage under the policy for claims expenses related to defending against the CN lawsuit. As noted, the CN complaint was filed in July of 2019, and Remprex was not dismissed until November of 2019. Under the terms of the policy, Remprex was entitled to coverage for, it, for its claims expenses incurred in defending the CN lawsuit. The court didn't find any coverage for the arbitra- or the mediations that they were involved in in the BNSF lawsuit. And the reason why the BNSF lawsuit is so important, for those who don't remember, that's the federal case that was tried before Judge Kennelly, where the mm-hmm. jury awarded $228 million. And where Remprex was not named, but where they were the object of the affirmative defense and subject to a subpoena, and the court said none of that's covered. Um, so, kind of a half, or kind of a win for uh, for Remprex in that case. Dan, uh, so that brings us to our rule, our prediction sure to go wrong this week: uh, United States versus Hansen, affirmed.
1: Affirmed, I think.
0: Think so. Cleaton versus S.I.U. Healthcare reversed.
1: Uh, I think so.
0: And Hattori versus Menchhoffer, I think reversed. I think reversed. Okay. Very good. I'm not catching up doing this, but, you know, it's what I actually think.
1: <laughs> yeah, segment two, I'm divided the the, the second case, but I, but I do think, yeah, I think it gets reversed.
0: Yeah. Which brings us to the rule of the week, Dan. Why don't you tell us, why don't you talk, introduce that?
1: I'll introduce it, and then you can uh, take it from there, Pat, and... Uh, On a prior episode, we had talked and you had spoken about a proposed rule change in Indiana on the recordings and court reporters, and uh, you had written a column, I believe, in the Daily Law Bulletin uh, that has now been settled. So why don't you tell us about what has happened and what the Illinois, not Illinois, Indiana Supreme Court has done uh, to Rule 74.
0: So Rule 74 deals with, uh, Indiana Trial Rule 74 deals with recordings and and transcripts of trial proceedings, and the amended rule, the original rule said it was prohibited to have stenography and shorthand reporters, and that was obviously a problem for the range of reasons that we discussed. The amended rule says that you can have the court reporter so long as you have the recording device. Okay, that's great, but now we have two recordings, and maybe three, because the court reporters oftentimes have two backups in addition to their machine, that is their fingers. So what's the official record? And what do you do when the court reporters got portions of, of proceedings that occurred in chambers or in the hall or so, or aren't picked up by the, aren't picked up by the machine. Cause I have a case where the underlying matter is a criminal matter that occurred down in Will County, Illinois. And they got this palace of a courthouse now in, In Joliet, it's gorgeous. You know they had little court, a lot of beautiful courthouses in Illinois. Will County did not have one. They had one that was uh, a was a brutalist architecture. If anyone's familiar with brutalist architecture, think uh, the Regenstein Library at the University of Chicago. Uh, Several brutalist is just it's it's ugly. It's really not good. And then they worked out of an annex for a while, which was like an office building catty corner from their their ugly courthouse, and now they have like a twelve-story glass and steel, just a beautiful courthouse. Well, one day, and it happened to be the underlying criminal matter for the case I'm handling, a coverage case. They're trying to get the allocu- They're trying to get the recording working for the allocution or for the the plea. I'm sorry, the plea. It don't work. So we have no record, and they so they go ahead and they do it anyway, and we got no recording. So we have no idea what was pled to or what. Uh, we talked about this kind of a circumstance in Erie versus Gibbs. You, you gotta have the record. And so if you don't have the recording, what do you do? That's why you have the court reporter. That's why the court reporter is so critical. Um, the rule allows for court reporters. That's good, but there's other issues that are going likely to arise. I hope they don't, but I expect that they will. Um, so the worst of it was avoided, but it still isn't great. Uh, so keep an eye on that for those that practice in Indiana and keep an eye on generally as the, the view that somehow technology is going to replace court reporters, I takes a it means you don't really appreciate what court reporters do. They are an indispensable part of the process and I do not believe they can be replaced in any meaningful way uh, with technology. Um, they, they, we have got an obligation at the profession to cultivate court reporters and to develop their talents, Young court reporters, because the average court reporter apparently is over fifty years old. So you do the math on uh, it. It's a it's it's a it's a very it's a great job for people that need flexibility. That that uh, and that it requires a great deal of skill, but it's critical to and it's and it's um, lucrative. It's, it's it can be very lucrative, and you set your it's schedule. Critical, you
1: can do what you would like. Yeah,
0: it's a it's critical for. Uh, both civil and criminal justice. Uh, and I don't think there's a way to replace it with technology. No. By it, I mean court reporters. So with that, uh, Dan, anything to add?
1: Nope.
0: So we'll take our leave. We appreciate everybody joining us this week. We'll see you next week on the Podium and Panel Podcast.
1: I'm Dan Cotter. On behalf of my co host, Pat Eckler, we thank you for listening and look forward to having you join us again. Please follow us on LinkedIn and read our columns in the Chicago Daily Law Bulletin. Please join us again at the Podium and Panel. Each episode on the Podium and Panel podcast. We will cover several oral arguments and decisions in civil matters at the Illinois Appellate Court and Illinois Supreme Court, with the occasional coverage of SCOTUS and other appellate courts. The purpose of the podcast is to inform of developments that may affect business and are not to be considered legal advice. They do not create a lawyer-client relationship. Information on previous case results do not guarantee a similar future result. The opinions are their own and do not reflect those of the firms for which they work or their clients.